This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Barbara Kingsolver. Of course, you know Barbara Kingsolver, but she has also just won the Pulitzer for Demon Copperhead, which is fabulous. And we will get to this book, I promise you. But Barbara, I'm going to ask you to talk about Southern Appalachia, where you live. And you moved back to, what, in early aughts, you moved back from Tucson? Yeah, that's right. I I grew up in Kentucky. I had to do my walkabout, you know, I left. Actually, like so many people growing up in really little towns, I couldn't wait to, you know, kick the little town dust off my heels and get out of there. I went to college in Indiana. Then I uh, really did my walkabout. I lived in Greece, Mm -hmm. uh, in France, in the UK, uh, in York. And I, I sort of wound up in Tucson for no uh, particular reason. <laughs> I, I went there to see the, the West and thought that I would m- maybe stay a, a month or two. And I stayed 20 years. Mm-hmm. So the whole time I was out West, you know, I learned a lot. I really mm-hmm. feel like I became a grown up there. I made, you know, wonderful friends and uh, sort of came of age, but it never felt like home. I always Mm -hmm. wanted to get back to this place where I Mm -hmm. live. So I was so, I actually started coming back halftime, started coming back in the summers in the 90s. And then finally we made the full time move in uh, 2004. This is the place. This is the right place for me at home. I, uh, I have to admit, I'm a huge fan of Animal Vegetable Miracle as Thank well. Thank you. And I love the idea. Are you still growing all of the tomatoes that no one else stocks? And are you still growing your sweet potatoes? That I you just, did? I wish I could turn the camera up uh-huh. the window and up the hill. I just put in uh, this week 40 tomato plants. And oh, that's uh, exciting. every year, I mean, our kids are grown now, so mm-hmm. we don't have the free labor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually they they you know they're they're always willing to help but, right you know we every year we say well we'll downsize next year we won't need such a big garden right there we go because we have to have you know the principi borghese's and we mm-hmm. have to have the green zebras and so you know i sort of whittle it down to this is what we have to have and it's 40 plants so right. yeah we still grow um, a really good sized garden and we you know we feed ourselves the family the neighborhood um it's it's how we uh, evidently it's how we like to live part of why i asked you to start with where you are and the sort of the southern appalachians is because there's so much love in your voice when you talk about this community and there's so much pride and i love how you are part of the community and you talk about it like this is my return and this is my home and this is because Demon Copperhead is hard. I mean, you're writing about the opioid crisis, but you're doing it in a way, I mean, Demon's voice. I read a lot of fiction, but I got to tell you, it's going to be a really long time before I shake that kid's voice. I just, he is so good and so real and funny and smart and all of these things. When did you get his voice? It kind of arrived all of a piece, but he took his time. I spent more than two years trying to figure out how to get into this story because I wanted to write about this place, Appalachia. I really wanted, I wanted to write about the opioid epidemic and the kids who have been orphaned 
by this crisis and how that's really changed our whole community, our schools, everything. People have ideas about addicts and, you know, personal weakness and stuff. And they also have ideas about Appalachia. And I really wanted to get through those, get past those stereotypes. I really wanted to write the great Appalachian novel. And I didn't know how to do it. And then I had this, I've told this story a lot of times. I had this sort of surprising ethereal conversation with Charles Dickens uh, <laughs> while I was staying the night in his house, thinking he wasn't there, but he was. Mm-hmm. And he told me, look, orphans, it's a structural poverty, uh, kids thrown away by society. You think this can't be done? Give me a break. Right. You think people won't read it? Come on. They will read it, but you let the kid tell the story. And that, that very night when I had the idea that I would write my own David Copperfield, his name came to me, Copperhead. Yeah. I saw this red-haired kid, sort of coarse, sort of I saw him immediately as Melungeon, dark-skinned, green-eyed, red hair, a kid, somebody that you know you look at and look at again, you know, mm-hmm. sort of arresting looking, tough kid, my demon copperhead, my would, you know, my David Copperfield. And he just started talking. I got him in my ear. He was really angry. I actually, that night, you know, when I started laying it out and seeing how the kid would tell the story and it would be the story of this kid, I understood that his voice would be that uh, narrative engine that would get people into this difficult story and it would get them through to the other side. It needed to be first person just to give readers that assurance that he's going to make it. Because he's telling you this story. I personally hate to read about children in jeopardy. If it looks to me like a kid, a child is going to die in a novel, I will actually, I can't bear it. And I will, I will page ahead to, to see how it comes out. So I thought this is, this is going to be a hard read for people like me, uh, for the tender hearts. But I want to give you that promise. This is a survivor's tale. He's telling you the story from the other side of it, starting with, I got myself born and all of these things happened to me, but here I am. I'm still here. Um, so, yeah, all of those things sort of came to me at once that it needed to be first person. Uh, it needed to be entirely sort of his understanding of the world, limited to his mm-hmm. vision. And that he needed to be just really loaded with righteous anger and a good sense of humor uh, about himself and his situation. A lot of irony. He's a much more angry and ironic character than David Copperfield. Yeah. I mean, you know, times have changed. You know, David Copperfield, he's a smart cookie, but he's also pretty wide-eyed. You know, mommy has a new boyfriend. I hope he will be nice. And it's <laughs> <just> like, nope. <laughs> I have my instructions and no. So a funny thing is that initially he was so angry I had to dial him back, you know, in the earliest drafts, he was so mad that I I realized he would be Mm -hmm. off-putting. Actually, when I had um, written about 200 pages uh, of the first draft, I just for curiosity, I did a search to see how many F-bombs Demon had dropped (laughs) in the first 200 pages. You want to take a guess? Um, 800, 900? (laughs) It was 175. Okay. So I thought, I thought, 
maybe I can maybe I can dial that back to just like one every three or four pages. Not just his language, but his whole attitude was very, you know, very pissy. So he he has to be likable. You have to you you understand his anger, but you also have to start by liking him and then loving him. So that was, you know, through through many drafts, I kind of manipulated you, the reader, into a sort of soft pedaled his anger in the beginning and then brought it in little by little as you understand his situation better and as you understand that no adult in his life is showing up for him, you will accept that he's seriously pissed off at all adults mm-hmm. and at the condition of childhood, yeah. uh, which he says is a really terrible thing to be a kid. And we meet him when he's nine or 10. He's little. He's really little when he starts telling his story. And you give him this height and girth and size that makes his life more complicated because mm-hmm. people are thinking he's older than he is. Mm-hmm. And sort of weighing that, like, of course, this kid is not going to trust anyone. Of course, this kid is seeing, I mean, the misogyny is it's present. It is absolutely present. But he does, you do give him some lifelines. I have to say, I liked his grandmother <laughs> quite well, a lot. I thought Betsy course. was great. The of neighbors course. were lovely, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, it's a it's it's a it's a line to walk because mm-hmm. I my sort I feel like I have this duty to represent Appalachia, represent yeah. my people and my place and my culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is so unfairly treated. If it's if it's if it shows up at all, you know, in mainstream media, it's we're just dumb hillbillies, or we are, you know, a poverty documentary. So I wanted to give you know truth and beauty and nuance to my culture, and to talk about these real problems that we have, these things that have been done to us. But you know, there are the addicted people and there are the, um, you know, the abusers, there's the, the, you know, the horrible stepfather and so forth. But it's an ecosystem of characters. Mm-hmm. I wanted to show you how nobody operates in a vacuum in right. this place. That's one of the truest things I can tell you about mm-hmm. us, about my people, is we are, we are people made out of community. So every kid has a memo. And that's, I mean, he even talks about that when he's little, he thinks that his neighbor, his next door neighbor's memo is his memo because he says everybody gets a memo, right? And because, you know, his father's dead and his mother is, you know, is a foster care orphan, mm-hmm. you know, he just kind of thinks this is a standard issue. Everybody gets a memo. So he adopts himself to the memo next door. And that is so true about this place. I could, if you were here, I would could walk down my road with you and mm-hmm. say, there's the memo who's raising her grandkids, and also looking after the kids next door. There are these wonderful sort of extended families of neighbors. And there are people like June Peggett, um, these professional people. She's uh, the wonder nurse. Who, you know, there, there's kind of permeable ba- boundaries between her patients, her clientele, mm-hmm. and sort of her her genuine love and care and right. desire to kind of look after these people even after they leave her office. So that's that's us. That's who we are. And if a kid has one adult in their lives they can count on, 
it makes a world of difference. And so the, that was that was his salvation. He had every terrible situation. Mm-hmm. He had at least a teacher yeah. or a memo or, you know, or the June the Wonder Nurse, somebody who had his best interests at heart. His problem is he didn't really believe he deserved very much. Right. So he pushes these people away in all kinds of ways, as kids do. But and also he considers himself an adult from the time he's 11 um, because he's he's essentially, you know, had to look after his own mother since he since he was old enough to find her shoes and find her keys. So, yeah, that toughness that allows him to survive also keeps keeps people at arm's length, but not the reader, I hope. No, 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 no. I have no experience of the region beyond what I've read. In books and what I know from history. I mean, one of the things I appreciate about this book too is the way you do not separate the history, the actual history of Appalachia from Demon's life. I mean, we're talking about the mine strikes and we're talking about what has happened in terms of corporations coming through the region and doing really terrible things yeah. to the communities, all just because they can, honestly. Yeah. They, they simply they can, can and there's a way to make money. Yeah. And I live in a couple of cities and I'm very lucky and I'm a city person. Okay, uh, I, straight up, uh, I will own it. I'm uh, a city person. Of course, most but, people are, or half the right. people are. <laughs> but the idea that someone like you or someone like Jane Peggett would go back to the community and say, no, I'm part of this. I yeah. don't want to leave that, you know, there's a brain drain that happens in places like Appalachia because there just aren't resources. I mean, employment is the yeah. main thing. And that was quite deliberate, the, the, mainly the coal companies. When, and that's that really uh, sort of put a fence around this whole region. The coal companies came in historically, bought the land, bought the city halls, bought the schools. They controlled everything and they quite deliberately kept out all other industries. So they had this workforce. It's very much like if you look at how imperialist governments treat, you know, their colonies in Africa or, you know, in Asia, it's exactly the same. It's just the same strategy. You come in, you suppress education, you make sure that there is no competing employment, and then you've got this, this, this labor force. That's what has been done to us. And it's so interesting that people, people don't understand that Appalachia is like an internal colony of the U.S. You know, why isn't there any employment here? You know, why does everybody have to leave? It's not because we're lazy and stupid. This was done to us. So, I don't see that story told very often. And so I wanted to tell it and um, also give, you know, outsiders some sympathy for how this feels from the inside. It affects Mm -hmm. even like when families are getting ready to send a kid away to college. It's a very mixed feeling. Right. There's a lot of sadness because there's almost a certainty that they won't be back. So the family is losing you know, their precious kids. And Demon, you know, talks about that in no uncertain terms. His friend Angus <laughs> is going to college is like, well, lost her. She's going to have to live in some yeah. horrible city, you know, poor her. It's hard if you're not from here to understand how th- that, that we all have that sort of torn feeling mm-hmm. of loyalty to home and longing for something else, which I, you know, I had growing up, I had to leave in order to understand 
um, how much I need this place. And I think, you know, everybody, everybody here experiences it. Yeah, I also just want to call out the Pulitzer citation for a second, because it is a prize that is given to an American writer, preferably writing about an American topic. And I think that's so important to raise. I mean, certainly it's nice to see Pulitzer Prize winner next to your name, but the idea, too, that this is a story that belongs to all of us. And, you know, you're talking about shame and you're talking about grief and you're talking about hunger. I mean, the poverty that runs through this book. And half the time, this kid is so hungry, he can't see straight. And like, we are a country that ostensibly is doing quite well. And and throws away so much food. Yeah. Yeah. And here's a kid who is actively starving. And I mean, it's here. It's a, this is a novel about class in America. Yep. And class is not something people talk about in America. Nope. But I think about it a lot, partly because, you know, I, I grew up sort of very aware of class. The, um, you know, miners at that time were one of the best unionized for, workforces yeah. in the country. So, you know, when you grow up in coal country or when you did, you know, a, a few generations ago, you had this clear understanding of labor and capital, who has the power uh, and who doesn't unless your labor is the organized labor is your power. A lot of the prejudice, a lot of the bigotry against Appalachia is classism. Yeah. You know, we've become very uh, sort of awakened, I'll say, to uh, to our bigotries. And we're careful about how we talk about other, you know, minorities yeah. and other oppressed people. <laughs> and still, you you know, liberals say the awfulest things about my people. And I have, you know, how stupid we are. And backwards. And I mean, you can't even watch, you know, mm-hmm. comedy, the comedy channel for 15 minutes before you hear a Kentucky joke about, you know, right. the girl I used to date, but she was lying through her tooth. It makes us so mad. Yeah. <laughs> As Demon says, we can hear you. Do you think we don't even have cable? You know, when I analyze this, I think it's about class. I think we pretend we're a classless society. So we're allowed to make these aspersions because there is no class, but there is. So yeah, this is a very American book. And I think I, I think, I think I write really American books. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. It's always surprised me that they're translated, you know, everywhere. Like, you know, in in Serbian and Turkish and and Japanese and yeah. Chinese and in the early days when actually one of the first translations of my first novel was into Japanese mm-hmm. and I asked my agent why did Japanese <laughs> people want to read this book that's about you know a girl in Kentucky and and they and she said the rest of the world is very interested in Americans yeah. <laughs> and that's so, exactly yeah, it that okay. Yeah, we export a lot of culture, um, and so I'm doing my part to export something that I think is pretty authentic. Yeah, I also want to shout out a piece that ran in The Nation. It was part of the Youth Communication Project, and a young woman, she grew up in Appalachia, and she's saying, well, finally, someone gets it. Like, someone understands that I have seen people die, and I've lost people in my family, and you know, my parents have had issues with addiction and everything else, but she's like, now I finally feel seen. You know, and she's a college student studying ecology and environmental biology, much like I you did. I need to read this. Yeah, yeah it's, this, you know. This is about Demon Copperhead? It is absolutely about Demon Copperhead. Oh. I'll tell you what, I'll send it to you because you Thanks. would love this piece. 
And it's just the idea that these kids, right? I mean, we talk about resilience in children. We talk about in all kinds of communities across America, right? Like, look at how resilient these children are. They have horrible situations and isn't this great? And I, part of me is just saying, well, yeah, but at the same time, can't we just start changing systems so children can be less resilient? Like, because- isn't that something that we should be thinking as the grownups in the room, right? <laughs> Shouldn't we be thinking about how we make it better for these tiny people that we are responsible for, even if they are not genetically our tiny people? Like, aren't we as the adults, aren't we supposed to be responsible for the tiny people? They are supposed to be our future. Right. They are our future. And um, yeah, okay, resilience means they survived. You know, some of of Mm -hmm. their peers didn't. They survived. But okay, they're still alive, but they're living with trauma. Yeah. Trauma that gets passed down through generations. So this is not a kind of future that we want. And that's something that I really wanted to expose that, you know, these simple things that people don't know, such as the fact that the foster care system is run as a for-profit business. Yeah, that's so wrong. Kids are so wrong. Products. Is that how we want to treat mm-hmm. kids? And, and that the DSS, you know, these, these social networks that are supposed to be taking care of these kids are so are stretched so thin and the workers are so underpaid and the turnover is so great that a DSS caseworker who is the legal guardian of a kid in foster care may not actually even know the names of these kids. So, so, so that, um, I'm so, I'm so glad to hear about that, that, um, that young person's uh, take on this. I've heard from a lot of people uh, a lot of kids who said, wow, yeah, this is my story. Um, one uh, young woman who grew up in foster care and she's now uh, she's now in, in college at the University of Kentucky. And I just wrote her, just, she wrote a review that was placed uh, in a couple of places and she sent it to me. And one of the things she wrote in the review was, this book isn't for people like me because I already know, you know, all of this. This is for other people. And I want them to read it. And I wrote back to her, I wrote to her and I told her, first of all, how proud I am of her for everything that she's she's done uh, to be the person she is. And I can't wait to see what she does next. But also I said, yeah, I did write this book for you. I want you to know that you're a person. When I was a little kid growing up in Kentucky without the faintest idea that people like me could write books, if I had seen someone like myself in an honest to God book, I would have changed everything. That would have, yeah. I mean, I probably would have become a, a writer a decade earlier than I did. Just knowing that was possible. Right. So yeah, I mean, mirrors, uh, books are, books are windows, but they're also mirrors. Yeah, totally. But you've also in the past talked about how being a freelance journalist really helped you hone your novelistic skills. And I'm wondering if we can talk about that for a second, because, you know, in 2018, you did an essay for being an exclusive edition of Unsheltered, which is also a novel I love. But you're talking about questioning yourself and how you possibly write about um, a crisis when you're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And Demon Copperhead, you have done exactly that. And part of me feels like that's your scientific training. Part of me feels like that's the journalism. And part of me thinks that's being a novelist as well, but all of those pieces come together for you in a really interesting way. And I was hoping you'd talk about that a little bit. Well, sure. Well, the main thing, being a journalist um, did 
several really life-changing things for me. One was just getting a paycheck for writing. Uh, just understanding that if I can sit at this desk and do the work and turn in the piece on time, I get paid. And that was a revelation. And, and I wanted I wanted more because I had uh, been writing all my life, but studying biology, getting degrees in biology, because that seemed you know like I could support myself. I didn't imagine I could, even though writing was my favorite thing, I didn't imagine I could support myself as a writer. So that was a revelation. And the other amazing thing that being a journalist did for me is, is get me out of my shell. I'm about the most introverted person that you can imagine. If there's like a, a, a spectrum of the extroverts okay. and introverts, like off the charts, I'm, I'm, over, <laughs> I'm over there, which is great for a novelist because I spent, you know, all of my working life in this room with no other people, just, you know, the people in here and the people back there on the bookshelf. And it's very quiet and I love it. I could, you know, I could live in a room by myself and I do. Well, I also have a family, but they're great. But yeah, I'm a really introverted person. And, you know, in the beginning, also a shy person. I was that kid in class who never talked, who sat in the back. That kid that, you know, is, is we're, we're taught that introversion is wrong, you know, bring them out, make them talk, all that. Was, well, I didn't. Well, then I had this job where I had to just like call cold call Kurt Vonnegut or, <laughs> you know, whoever and right. go get a statement from this woman that slammed the door in my face. And right. um, I, Kurt Vonnegut did not, by the way, he was very nice. But, mm-hmm. but you know, just that sort of terrifying business of picking up a phone and calling somebody that doesn't necessarily want to talk to me was one of the hardest things I've ever had to learn to do. And actually go places, show up, get in people's faces, you know, talk to Mm -hmm. them, get the story, even if they're not ready to talk about it, you know, be compassionate, but get the story. I learned that you can be introversion is for life. It's how I'm wired, not going to change. Shyness Mm -hmm. can be changed. And so I am not shy anymore. Um, and that's really helpful as a writer because I, I still have to interview people. I had to sit down and talk with a lot of people who've been through really hard things in order to get the information I needed to write this book. So, too, with Demon Copperhead, I know you did talk to a lot of folks. I just want to shout out three writers that I'm sure popped up as you were working. I mean, certainly Beth Macy, Patrick yep. Radden Keefe and yep. um, Sam Quinones, uh, Sam Quinones, and we'll drop those book titles in the uh, show notes as well. Because Beth Macy, Dope Sick, Lazarus Rising, Lazarus Rising is an incredible book, it's and great. it's so hopeful, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Patrick Radden Keefe, the first time I read him, I wanted, I was so mad, and I'll tell you, if you listen to the audiobook of him reading Empire of Pain, your blood pressure will come down a little bit because the first time I read it, I was so. Mad. I was so mad. And Dreamland, obviously, by Sam Quinones. But, you know, we're talking about the people in your community, though. We're talking about people you see. And I'm not saying their stories directly come into this book, but it's really intense writing about your people like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And especially kids, but also old people have, you know, there's so many elderly people who are addicted. Because they went to the doctor for a you know an an injury, um, and got this bottle of pills, 
and were instructed as as you know Purdue had passed down to them. Um, you take these by the clock, don't miss one, stay ahead of the pain, and they, they get to the end of the bottle and they're already addicted. And a lot of elderly people haven't even known that they were addicted. They they didn't really know they were dope sick. They just knew when they finished the bottle, they felt horrible and had to go back to the doc for more oxy. In every walk of life, there's so many people who've been uh, wrecked by this, families wrecked. I have so much compassion and, and sympathy for them that I really wanted to get into this book to pass through. Um, so yeah, it's a very dark, very dark book. I had to spend days and days in, you know, just get up in the morning and go again, sit down here and say, oh God, what am I doing to do today? Um, it was really hard. I, 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 it was, there were dark months of the writing. I'm so lucky that I have a really supportive family. I would just, and I, and I set limits, you know, I, I would just say, okay, at six o'clock, I'm out of here. I'm ending this, uh, wherever I am, I'm going to shut down the computer, go downstairs. And my dear husband will take my hand and say, let's go for a walk. Let's walk up the road into the woods and just remember that life is good. We have, you know, we are doing the best we can for everybody that we can. And my family is happy and healthy and, you know, just kind of bring me back to what's good in life. Uh, and also just remind myself that this is for a, pers- a purpose. I'm not doing this for myself. Um, if I were, I'd do something else. <laughs> I would go knit a sweater. <laughs> oh, I, I I have questions about your sheep, but we're going to okay. cover some other stuff before I come back to the sheep. Okay. I'm a knitter as well, so I have questions. Oh, for you, you are okay. I am. Oh yes, I was delighted to know about your sheep. But can we go to Steinbeck for a second? You've talked about Cannery Row and the impact, yeah. and it's a book that I mean, I love Steinbeck's body of work as it is, and it's so delightful to be able to pick up stuff like the Wayward Bus that people have never taught. And right, you know, he just had this eye for America, right? I. I my eyes are getting really big as I talk about John Steinbeck. And I don't know if you saw that really great new biography of him, Mad at the World. It came I out did, in 20... 20- but oh, oh, I love the title. If you have a chance, it's okay. really worth it. It's so okay. good. But I mean, Steinbeck was doing a lot of what you were doing, right? Like yeah. East of Eden yeah. is a yeah. California story. Like, yeah, I yeah. love it's a that great, It's a great, um, it's the great California novel. Right? Yeah. It so is. And there are a couple of characters in there that will just always keep surprising you. And but I feel like you're sort of in this direct lineage, right, from Steinbeck with what you're doing and just saying, hey, listen, we need to look at what's happening here. We need to look at what we're doing to ourselves, to our communities. And I'm going to be a little funny while I do it. I'm going to be a little mad while I do it. But I am going to tell you a story because art is the way to get heard, right? Yeah. yeah. But Cannery Row, Cannery Row is a book that doesn't often... <laughs> Like it's it's a little higher than say Wayward Bus, right? Like yeah, people right. who are like Wayward Bus, not, what? It, yeah, it's not part of the most respected can and it's, it's not necessarily taught. Right? It's, it's not hilarious. grapes of wrath. Right. So I just I want to bring because honestly, it's it's sort of central northern California. It is not Los Angeles. Right. Um, but I want to talk about the impact that kind of storytelling had on you because I just I really like this story. <laughs> well, that book, that particular book had a profound effect on me. It sort of turned me into a writer. Um, just just like that. Um, because part of our culture, for better and for worse, is this culture of modesty. You do not 
put yourself above other people. The tall weed gets cut. Um, the it's real. It's very Appalachian. Uh, modesty is like just baked into us. The worst thing I heard people say when I was growing up about a woman is she's parading herself around. Uh, so you do not want to parade yourself around, which rings in my ears when I'm on book tour, by the way. Because um, <laughs> what is that but parading yourself around? So it's just like you just grow up with these rules that are in in your DNA. Right. And, um that's part of why I never, I mean, I just love to write. I always was writing poems and making up stories and keeping mm-hmm. them you know, very secret. And part of it was that I thought, well, I'm an ordinary person. Regular people don't write books. And all the people that I know are ordinary people. They're not fancy. They're not famous. They're not, you know, high and mighty. I don't know any people like that. Right. So what would I write about ever? So I guess maybe when I was, I was about, I was late teens when I read Cannery Row. Mm-hmm. And I just loved it. I don't even know where I found it, the library. I found everything at the library. And uh, I just was just loving all these people, even though, you know, they're in California, but they could have been my neighbors. It was the same kind of little community of of ordinary people who do these goofy things. Like, I know we'll go catch frogs. And there's one chapter in there that's from the po- told from the point of view of a groundhog mm-hmm. oh yes there is oh yes like, there is <laughs> that rocked my world right. like everybody in every little person in this funny community um sort of funny threadbare not wealthy not important mm-hmm. people community including the groundhog had a point of view yeah. and all together they made something glorious. They told you something about the world that you didn't know before. And when I read that, I just thought, I could write a book like that. I could write a mm-hmm. book like that. And that was The Bean Trees. My yep. first novel was my <laughs> version of Canary Row. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really think, I just, when I was young, I just read, you know, I just read voraciously everything I could get Mm -hmm. my hands on. And these certain books just would, you know, ring my bell and tell me something new about what fiction could be in the world, what it could do. I wasn't thinking so much about Steinbeck, but as I went on, I kept going back to Steinbeck thinking, okay, he's doing what I want to do in all these different ways. Mm -hmm. And I learned different specific things like the way he uses the dramatic point of view in of mice and men for example i studied that to say okay i can write about a person who's very much not me whose brain i don't fully understand a character like lenny but i have to do it from the outside by a very careful observation Mm -hmm. so that's been my answer all along pretty straightforward answer to that question of authenticity and who am I allowed to write about um which is a very big question these mm-hmm. days yep. that's my answer I'm allowed to write about anybody I want from the outside I don't right. go inside and try to represent what their brain looks like inside but anyway all these different things I learned from Steinbeck and mm-hmm. then finally I sort of grew up and said oh legacy yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he's like my writing grandfather he's one of the few 
writers have really persisted through that era of U.S. history when um, art and politics got a divorce. Yeah. How the McCarthy era when I mean, it was it was it was it was done to artists. They lost their jobs if they tried to be political. He he's the voice that um, of the 20th century that I just kept talking, kept talking to us all. And one of the ways you pass on his legacy, too, is through this Penn Bellwether Prize that you have sponsored since 2000. And um, Lisa Coe, The Leavers, was one of the picks. And also Jamila Minnick's Moonrise Over New Jessup is out now. There's a new one coming for 2023 that's not yet pubbed. Um, But I want to shout her out. Fabian Josephat, Kingdom of No Tomorrow. That's the 2023 winner. And I just, I would really like to talk about this prize for a second because I think it's really important. It's a cash prize for emerging writers, let's call them, um, folks who have not yet been published. And you do this in conjunction with some other folks. And I think it's just really important to talk about it for a second. Would you mind bringing us through? I'd be delighted to. Yeah. When uh, I started this in, in, um, yeah, in 2000, after I got my first big advance for for Poisonwood Bible, I'm I'm a very low overhead person. My family and I, we don't, you know, we don't need a lot to live on. Uh, we like living simply. So I thought, well, what am I going to do with this money? And it seemed like at that time, I felt like I was working against such strong headwinds against the kind of writing that I like to do, which is mm-hmm. what I would call socially engaged fiction. Right. Fiction that really just engages with issues that I think we all you know, mm-hmm. should be thinking about and want to be thinking about. Uh, it was just not done partly i think that was because i'm female and there's this thing about women you know assuming moral authority i was accused of ambition whereas men would be praised for it um (laughs) sorry i'm trying not to i'm trying not to make Um, snorting noises but i'm dangerously close but so yeah i mean a lot of it was that but it was just also a time in american letters where there was just no courage in terms of social engagement uh, it was just all minimalism and form uh, and and not meaning. So I thought that's the kind of writing I want to support. And I want to sort of give it cachet for publishers, for writers, for readers. And the best way to do that maybe would be to find a manuscript that has not been published and award it with publication. So this is a really, this is a unique Mm-hmm. Writing prize. All the writing prizes go to people who are already published, who have usually, you know, already done a lot in their careers, and it's just like a nice pat on the back. So you can say, "Oh, I won the Pulitzer." Yippee! Which is also very nice. But I didn't need it. You know what I mean? I'll say, I'll say it didn't change my life so much. I wanted a life-changing award. I wanted an award that would establish a career yeah. for a writer. So that's what we do. We read unpublished manuscript mm-hmm. and the winning manuscript is awarded $25,000 which right. is a big fat writing prize that's a good writing prize oh yeah without a doubt more, oh without a doubt more than the pulitzer i would mm-hmm. just say so it's a chunk of money and in addition to that you get to work with an editor and you get published guaranteed yeah. and so you also get the advance from the publisher and the publicity and all of that so it's just a life changing award that i wanted to create and fund to help put these writers into the world. 
And we've now put it's it's every other year because yep. it's a lot of it's a lot of work to read unpublished manuscripts mm-hmm. and all that. The administration and Penn uh, does the administration and they do, do a wonderful job in these whatever twenty three years we've 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 put a lot of writers into the world like Lisa. They keep writing great books and that makes me so happy. It's a lot of runway. It's a lot of runway and it's a good runway. And, you know, part of why I raise it, one, is any excuse to talk about books. Hi. But also, you know, it's part of the literary community, right? It's like what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hold the door open for other people. And, you know, art is political. Okay. Books are like art is political. You have a point of view. And maybe you don't agree with someone's point of view, but you have a point of view. And I love you made this point years ago in an interview you did with them. Richard Price, who I quite like, one of the nicest men in the world, and also just a really great writer. But you're talking about finding the universal, right? Finding the universal in a story where someone can connect. And again, I have no connection to Appalachia beyond what I've read. And you just pulled me in to this world. I get so excited just thinking about all of these voices, this chorus. And yeah, Demon obviously is the heart and soul of this book. But even the bad guys, I was like, well, I'm going to see what you do. And there's not necessarily a direct correlation to everyone in uh, David Copperfield. So if you're thinking, oh, no, Charles Dickens is not my guy. David Copperfield is not my guy. doesn't matter. Just read Demon Copperhead. You don't have to read or even like Dickens. No, um, not at all. Not uh, at if all. you do, you'll find like a million private jokes between me and yes. Charles Dickens, which is, you know, just those are just Easter eggs, but you don't need them. But um, yeah, what you say about art being political is is what I've always thought. And I think that the heart of it for fiction is empathy, uh, that it, it gives you, it puts you inside of the other. So it breaks down these, these walls between us, which is a really political act. It's kind of the opposite of war or meanness. But that's why it just like for years and years and years, it sort of baffled me when people always like always opened the interview with well you're a political writer right and like why do you why do you do that because i live in this world right (laughs) and these like why would i write about sexism because i breathe it and i live it and i'm experiencing it actually in this interview you might not know not this one but no no i understand (laughs) i do understand what you're saying how can how can an artist not be political. I mean, even a romance novel has a point yeah. of view. Yeah. And I couldn't even figure out why I was so singled out. I think maybe, you know, maybe amb- the ambition thing, writing about large themes, also being, you know, sort of a working class writer. I think what people often meant by that was this makes me uncomfortable. If it makes me uncomfortable, then you shouldn't have written it. Um, so. The good news is I think we're getting over that. I think when I look at the the most talked about novels of recent years, you know, I mean, they're The Overstory by Richard mm-hmm. Powers. They're, uh, you know, Colson Whitehead, uh, The Underground Railroad. They're, I think that the the entry into this sort of this new openness in, in publishing uh, to socially engaged fiction. I think the entry was identity politics. That sort of led the way. And now um, now we are accepting a lot of sort of diverse points of view. Mm-hmm. The publishing world has 
has gotten so much more uh, sort of open-minded about what what whatever political art is um, that I'm I'm wondering. Actually, I'm sort of in a in an existential moment with the bellwether. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if we need. I love that it brings a new writer into the world, but I wonder if we need that exact bellwether, or if the bellwether needs to be uh, looking for some other uh, other voice that needs more help. Um, it's just something to think about. It is. I mean, you know Orion Magazine, right? You've been I interviewed. Do. I do. I and and they're they're a good crew of folks. I'm I'm very yeah, fond of them, and they're mm-hmm. working actually on a sort of an education program in conjunction with Brown University, sort of workshopping some stuff with some up and coming writers. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> that well, seems like I don't know that environmental writing. I mean, I think there's some folks who there's so much room to roam in fiction, and especially when you're dealing with something that's as big as sort of climate change or you know just the environment in general. What mm-hmm. we're doing to it, like farming, for instance. I never knew anything about tobacco farming. I just honestly, I thought at this point it was all sort of the giant commercial farms. It never occurred to me that smaller farmers would be involved in this in any way because. Yeah, Sorry, I, actually, I interestingly, tobacco is the one crop that cannot be farmed on an industrial scale. It's oh, the, okay. It's the only crop that that still has to be raised by small family farms. And so, one more I, unprintable word <laughs> that has happened to my region. Yeah, <laughs> because that was the base of the this county. All the counties around here, the county I grew up in the base of their economy was tobacco. And it was so odd for me, you know, who like tobacco was, you know, was new shoes. Tobacco was how I got to go to college and to go to college and hear people saying, oh, you know, tobacco is evil. Tobacco had just recently become evil or was in the process. And if I would say, but what about the tobacco farmers? People just had no notion that farmers were growing this or that they didn't have any choice about it. I guess it's the same with food. You know, we don't really think too much about where the food comes from. I was a weird little kid in New England in the 70s because we had a working farm Uh just a couple of doors down. And Uh my brother and I, every fall, you know, or whenever there would be a new piglet and then the piglet would turn into a hog and then would disappear. And we would go running into the house and say, where's the pig? Charlotte's web. <laughs> our neighbor, no, our neighbor would just say in the freezer, and we'd say, "Okay." <laughs> just, I mean, we were exposed to this stuff very early on. Maybe it influences the way I eat, but also I just live in places where I have access to green markets, and I have access to all sorts of wonderful, amazing things, and I don't honestly have to think about it that much. And I do feel guilty about that, but well, I mean- I'm a city person. Well, it's it's those are the choices you have, and you're among mm-hmm. the choices you have. You're making the good ones. So, what's to feel guilty about? I feel like um, food is one, and and we talked about this in in the book in Animal Visual Miracle. Yeah, that that um, making more sustainable food choices is one of one of the few areas of you know sort of righteous living that's actually. There's no sacrifice. It actually tastes True. better. It's just more fun. You know, it's more delicious. It's like, you know, it's the uh, kind of opposite of tightening your belt. Yeah, we are lucky. And actually, before I let you go, though, can we go back to the sheep for a second? Because you oh. also raise Icelandic sheep. And I know we've had this big conversation about all of the things that are broken, but I want to go back to this beautiful place that you live. 
which is really so much not broken. I mean, yeah, it matters. Yeah. No, there's so many things that I love about living here. You know, when well-meaning friends from far away sort of idly ask me how I can live in the middle of nowhere, I look around and think, oh, man, this is everywhere. This is my everything. Um, All the food that we can eat is growing, (laughs) growing right here. Our water comes out of the mountain directly into our into our house. In the scheme of things, with a with a changing climate, we're so lucky here. We're getting more rain than we used to, but mm-hmm. generally speaking, and I should say this quietly, or everybody else in the planet will want to move here. But we're we're doing okay. Yeah. You know, we're we're actually pretty well set. We're not near a coast. Mm-hmm. We're not. You know, right. the unsettled weather is is very hard on farmers. But you know, mm-hmm. everyone's adjusting. But yeah, we even we grow our own food and we grow our own sweaters. Yeah. So um, we have a flock of Icelandic sheep. They're very beautiful. They're all colors. Right. They have, they have horns. Yep. They are uh, white, black, brown, spotted. Mm-hmm. Um, wait, wait, wait. I did not know you can have spotted Icelandic sheep. I, I knew they had a variety of colors and they also have that crazy long wool. But how right. many head of sheep do you have in a flock? Uh, it depends before or after lambing. But oh, we're, right. <laughs> we're flocking <laughs> because they have twins or right. more. Oh, so a flock of 20 goes to, you know, a, blo- a flock of 40 in the space of a, a month. But mm-hmm. the stable flock is about mm-hmm. 20. Um, wow. They are okay. they are good to eat. Mm-hmm. We say they're going to freezer camp. Yeah, um, uh, you know. <laughs> but, they, you know, this is they exist in the world to be to grow wool and to be eaten. That's right. If, if they didn't have that purpose they their lives would never have happened so um that's how i look at it when the you know a, a leg of lamb on the table is that animal's actualization and i know there's people who just don't don't get that and think that i'm a horrible person for saying so but you know everything eats i'm a biologist everything eats has to eat something alive unless you happen to have chlorophyll in your leaves and then you are a god um, so <laughs> So yeah, our sheep um, grow this beautiful wool, which we shear twice a year, and uh-huh. I take it to a mill, which is run by a friend. It's not too far from here. She makes the the yarn. She makes beautiful yarn, mm-hmm. and her mill is solar powered. And my sheep are solar powered. There is no fossil no fossil fuels go into those sheep because they eat grass. They eat the sun turned into food by those those wonderful gods, the grasses. And so then I knit sweaters and, you know, when I give someone a sweater, I say, this is, a, this is made of pure sun. Mm-hmm. I love that, that no fossil fuels entered. Well, I do have to drive to the mill. So okay. yeah, I have an electric car now. <laughs> and all things considered, all things considered, that's a very small footprint for a very, <laughs> a very, very cool project. I, yeah. So, yeah, I, um, I knit I knit with my own wool and it's really fun. I've actually just entered into this collaboration with a, 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 a knit publishing company called Nitrino at, where I'm designing patterns that can that people can <laughs> knit with my wool, with my yarn. Oh, dear. I say, oh, dear, as someone who has multiple projects going. At the yeah, well, so and do I. You know how um, it goes. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, I love books and I love words and I love writers, but sometimes you need a thing that isn't that. You need just to be able to play with wool. <laughs> That's so interesting you say that because I feel like knitting is 
the, the one of the most important things it does for me is it quiets the yes. quiets the words because I have I don't know a, a word it's like a word gumball machine somewhere in my head that just keeps spitting them out they just keep coming keep coming and sometimes I just need the words to shut up mm-hmm. um, and knitting does that for me yep. just the, the words go because it's nonverbal it's mathematical or it's something it's and it's textural and I just love getting the needles and getting the wool in my hands and just feeling my whole, my blood pressure (laughs) relax and just the whole thing. And then plus I'm the kind of person who, uh, whose recreation needs to end with a product. (laughs) (laughs) I respect, I respect. I'm just a maker, you know, I'm just like, I guess I'm sort of goal oriented. I just can't, you know, when I, when I see people, you know, adults mm-hmm. going to get to video games, you yeah. know, for like hours on end, I just think, I guess it's maybe it's, I don't know. It's a different kind of brain. I need, I need a product at the end of all that work. I need something to show for it. So I have to say, gloves. Yeah. there's so much you can do, but also part of why I wanted to play with your farmsteading homesteading piece is not just because have I dreamt of having sheep? Yes, I have, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. But that said, it's important to remember where this book is grounded. I know Demon Copperhead is going to be a very intense reading experience for a lot of people, but to know that it comes out of a really big hearted love for a place and a community and a pride in that community. And even though the community is put through horrible, horrible, horrible things, many of which are out of its control, And the question is, where do we go next? And I just, there's so much beauty in this book for all of the difficulty. And yeah, there's some terrible things that happen, but there's a lot of beauty in this book. And I just really want people to understand where it's grounded and where it's coming from. Well, thank you for that. And where, and what, and what can be done? Because I mean, I think what can, what can come out of the love I put into this book is a kind of love and compassion Mm -hmm. for for a category of people that maybe haven't been seen enough and haven't been thought about enough and plenty can be done for them. Beth Macy's newer book, uh, rising and raising Lazarus. It's a great place to begin. If you've found some compassion in your heart for the addicted people, then, then from there you can learn about how important it is that we put resources into the programs that meet addicted people where they are. Yeah. That, that there's not prison, you know, incarcerate to understand incarceration does not cure addiction. Police don't cure addiction, medicine and pro and supportive programs cure addiction. And people will only get that kind of help if you start by giving them clean needles and uh, fentanyl test strips and things that keep them alive until they can can get to a life-saving kind of treatment. Harm reduction matters. It works. I mean, we have evidence that harm reduction works. Exactly. And I was so glad on my tour. Mm -hmm. I don't, when I, when I toured the U S for demon Mm -hmm. copperhead, I don't ever accept speaking fees um, because I don't want to be a professional speaker because of like, see the above about introversion. I don't ever want that to be my job, but sometimes on tour, I get um, put into, a, you know, a, a schedule of a lecture series or something for right, which right. there is an honorarium, sometimes a very large honorarium. 
So whenever that happened on this tour, well, always whenever it happens, I try to uh, donate it to some local project that that sort of connects with the with the the theme of the book or with yep. the issues of the book. This time, I found several opportunities to donate that honorarium to local harm reduction centers. So uh, one in Denver in particular. So that that made me happy. Parading herself around could could amount to something useful. <laughs> uh, please keep parading yourself around. I just, <laughs> I mean, as long as I've been a bookseller, you've been Barbara King solver. So I would very much <laughs> like it if you continue to do what you're doing. Well, that's really the helpful. other thing. I mean, I know it's really helpful for the booksellers and I care so much about booksellers. I know. You um, I, we need you very much. So thanks to all the booksellers out there who are who are doing mission work. I appreciate you and I, <laughs> I appreciate you and wouldn't have the career that I have without booksellers. And that seems like a really nice place to wrap, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> the mutual admiration. Oh, absolutely. Barbara Kingsolver, thank you so much for Demon Copperhead, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. I will never get tired of saying that, but seriously, thank you for everything you do for books and writers and booksellers. It's really fun to see you. Thanks. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.